Carbon on Mars, and Waking a Massive Space Telescope. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. This past year, all eyes have been on NASA's Perseverance rover as it explores Mars during its first year on the Red Planet. But a robotic explorer that landed there nearly a decade ago has made a curious finding, carbon. Specifically, the Curiosity rover found a type of carbon that, here on Earth, is associated with biological processes. So does that mean this carbon is evidence of life on Mars? We'll speak with University of Florida astrobiologist Dr. Amy Williams about the findings and the efforts to figure out where this carbon could have possibly originated. Then, the James Webb Space Telescope has made it to its final destination and successfully unfolded and deployed all of its parts. But the scientists, who will get to use the telescope for the first time, still have nearly five months to wait before the observatory begins collecting data. But the wait is worth it for the science promised by the JWST. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. We'll speak with Florida Space Institute's Noemi Penilla Alonso about her plans for the telescope and why scientists have to wait so long to start looking at the stars. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? Here on WMFE, America's space station. NASA's Curiosity rover has made a rather curious discovery on Mars, carbon. It's a type of carbon that's tied to biological processes here on Earth, so does that mean it must have come from some living organism on the red planet? Well, to bring us up to speed on the findings and the implications for the search for life outside our own planet, we've invited back Dr. Amy Williams. She's an astrobiologist at the University of Florida. Dr. Williams, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. Great to have you back. So I, I was doing some reading, and, and we, we talk a lot about the Perseverance rover, right? We've had you on the show to talk about Perseverance. But there's some other science happening out there, and the Curiosity rover actually found a very curious finding um, itself with uh, finding carbon. Um, tell us a bit about these findings. What, what do they mean? This is one of my, my favorite things with actually the name of the rover, Curiosity. We can always say things on Mars are getting curiouser and curiouser. So <laughs> yes, we've got some really exciting new, um, new findings coming out of the Curiosity rover. I feel like Perseverance gets a lot of the, the limelight these days, but Curiosity is still roving, rolling, and making really great discoveries. Um, this this recent paper that's come out from Chris House and colleagues is based on data collected by the SAM instrument, which I have the um, fortune to also work with uh, that instrument team. And so Chris's paper is is really intriguing because what it's pointing out is is something that just doesn't fit with what we expected necessarily to see on Mars. So his findings are that there's carbon that if you found this kind of carbon signature on Earth, you would think that it was made by life. And of course, on Mars, we want to start in the most responsible way by saying, well, perhaps it wasn't life that did this. So what other options are there? But, you know, we do keep coming back to, gosh, it sure does look like what you get on Earth. And so I think that this paper is really great because it does pay equal attention to both biotic and abiotic reasons why this carbon signature is preserved on Mars and why we've discovered it. Um, and I think it's just a really great way to, to kind of bring to the forefront that we are still learning so much about Mars. I know we, we have multiple active rovers and landers, and it's 
it's just a good reminder that Mars is a very complex world and we're still learning so much about it. Uh, Dr. Williams, let's take a step back and talk about the instrument that made this discovery, um, the SAM. Can you tell us what this instrument is um, and, and how it was able to determine that, that there was this, these traces of carbon um, in, in what it was observing? Absolutely. So the, the SAM instrument, um, the acronym stands for Sample Analysis at Mars, which is purposefully vague because SAM is actually multiple instruments wrapped into one great big package. Um, it is able to detect organic carbon. It's able to uh, basically sniff the gases that uh, are in the atmosphere. And we can um, also measure isotopes um, in both rock samples and in the atmosphere. And so it's it's this isotopic signature of carbon that we've we've made this discovery with that we're really excited about. Um, so on the SAM instrument, the the particular instrument subsuite that was used in this study is called the TLS, which is the Tunable Laser Spectrometer. And so um, it's basically using a laser with a specific uh, wavelength to um, measure the isotopes in. Um, you can look at carbon, sulfur, oxygen, uh, hydrogen. And it's those carbon isotopes that have, have come out as being very characteristic of, of at least what we would identify as life on Earth. And that's why those findings are so intriguing with the SAM instrument. You mentioned that you're constantly learning about Mars, and this is another example of it. And and this is kind of what science is all about, right? You you, you get this discovery, it, it doesn't fit to what, what you thought, so you try to figure out the... Uh, um, the origins of, of your findings. But I'm, I'm wondering, is there kind of like this earth bias that goes into this stuff that, you know, we expect carbon to, you know, organisms to have carbon like this, so it must be that way on Mars? And, and how do you kind of break that bias and think outside the box when you're trying to figure out what's actually happening on Mars? When you're searching for life on Mars, but you assume there's probably not life on Mars, so we need to be really responsible about our interpretations. Absolutely. Um, I think you really hit on uh, an important part of astrobiology, which is being responsible about interpretations and then also trying to reduce our, our Earth bias. Everything on Earth really has been touched by life one way or the other. So we do try to have uh, sort of a, a, an agnostic take on whether a process of finding, you know, what we're looking at could be made by life or not. We try to approach it scientifically, um, you know, from first principles. And so with, with this finding, you know, I think that they've done a really good job of trying to point out the different ways that this signature could have been made. But you're absolutely right. When we... When we look at these data, we think, gosh, you know, the, the canonical explanation for this would be that microbes on Earth are, are kind of metabolizing or um, basically processing um, methane and turning it into basically their biomass. And that's how you get these what we call really uh, depleted isotopic signatures. And that, that's what we've that kind of signature is what we've detected uh, on Mars with SAM. So how do you, how do you follow up with this? I mean, you can you can kind of throw some ideas out there and say, well, this might have happened. Is, I mean, are we going to be able to have a, a you know an, an absolute reasoning for for where the signature came from? How how do you how do you confirm this without going there? 
<laughs> Gosh. Yeah, without going there. Um, well, the, the wonderful news is that we don't yet have to go there because we are going to be, uh, the plan is to bring samples back to Earth. So I, I would say, I would start out by saying that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And for me, as an astrobiologist, um, this is certainly intriguing and compelling. And um, follow-up analyses with the SAM instrument are, are certainly in order. But I think to be able to claim life on, on Mars or on any world um, beyond Earth, what we would have to do is have just an absolute um, wall of evidence, you know, all of these lines of evidence coming together to conclude that there is life beyond Earth. I want to be confident, you know, when you make a, a, an assertion like this, because it really would be paradigm shifting to have confirmation that we are not alone in the universe. So as far as making uh, some of these confirmations with, with our Mars exploration program, you know, we, we are going to, or we are, I should say, collecting samples for return to Earth as part of the Mars sample return architecture, of which the Perseverance rover is the first step. So we are collecting core samples. Uh, future missions uh, are planned to go collect those samples and bring them to Earth. And although the samples we're collecting are not from the same area that the, the samples are that Curiosity has explored, um, some of the, the hope is that these, these ancient environments are, are still comparable in some ways and would be able to preserve evidence for what we call biosignatures or evidence of that life, even if the life is gone now. So the, the hope is by bringing these samples back, we can apply all of our, our cutting edge technology here on Earth um, to these samples and really be able to dig into these questions and look for confirmation uh, of these really intriguing findings. You, you mentioned the perseverance is collecting those samples. We've talked about um, why that's so exciting for scientists um, on, on previous episodes. But I'm wondering if, if there's anything on Perseverance rover that can either, you know, complement some of these findings of curiosity um, or, or continue some follow-on studies elsewhere on Mars. I mean, is, can, is Perseverance equipped to kind of make these, these same observations? So the Perseverance mission, although the uh, instruments are extraordinarily capable, um, there are different instrument suites for the most part from what's on Curiosity. So if we want to, for example, look for organic carbon, the instruments that can do that on Curiosity and Perseverance are, are different instruments, but both of them are extremely capable of looking at organic carbon in different ways. And so what we're able to do on Perseverance is look for organic carbon with the Sherlock instrument. Um, and so we've actually had some findings come out at uh, like the American Geophysical Union fall meeting um, a couple of months ago showing that we are detecting, you know, it seems like maybe simple single or double ring um, aromatic, meaning ringed organic molecules on Mars in, in these rocks we're exploring in Jezero Crater. So we already are starting to um, uh, sort of draw these multiple lines of evidence together and say, okay, the organics we see in Gale Crater with Curiosity, we're also seeing organics in Jezero Crater with Perseverance. So we're building now a sort of a global story of the distribution of uh, these elements and molecules that are intrinsically linked with, with life, at least as we understand it on Earth. And I, I did feel bad when I was prepping for this interview, Dr. Williams, because 
we have been talking about Perseverance for the past year, since we're coming up on one year of it being on, on the planet. But Curiosity is yep. still doing some great science, right? And and you are working on Curiosity. Tell, tell me a little bit about, um, you know, some of the science campaigns and the science goals of, of Curiosity, the, the often forgotten mission <laughs> this, this year. Yeah, Curiosity will will always be near and dear to my heart as my first Mars mission. Um, yes, Curiosity is still going strong, still exploring Gale Crater and climbing up uh, Aeolus Mons, which is informally called Mount Sharp. It's this um, mountain of sediments in in Gale Crater, and we've you know we wanted to go to Gale Crater originally because we saw all of these sediments, and and as a geologist, you can sort of read the sediments, read the environments, or like pages in a book. And so you can really start to deconvolve what happened early on in Mars's history by looking at these different layers of rock and, and making interpretations about the environments in which they formed. And so we landed the bottom of um, the, the crater where it turns out there was a lake and we explored habitable environments there. And as we've been climbing up the mountain, we've continued to discover habitable environments, places where life would have wanted to live in the past. Um, and now we are kind of transitioning from sort of this really clay-rich area into what we call the sulfate-bearing unit. Now, sulfates are really interesting because they often form in um, sort of dry, desiccating environments. And so we think what we are transitioning between in these two layers or units is sort of a, a major environmental shift, at least at Gale Crater and maybe for whole regions of Mars, between when Mars was a, a wet and maybe warmer and more habitable environment to one in which it was starting to, to dry out and become more of the, the cold, dry desert that we're familiar with today. So we're really embarking on, on the start of the sulfate unit exploration um, now, and it's it's really rewriting our understanding of Gale Crater and of Mars and its history. Well, Dr. Williams, you'll have to come back as you uncover more of the ancient history of Mars in Gale Crater and also the, the great things happening with Perseverance. Uh, Dr. Amy Williams is a astrobiologist at the University of Florida. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Williams. Thank you so much. Still to come, the waiting game begins. Scientists are anxiously awaiting nearly five months for the James Webb Space Telescope to first begin its science campaign. What can we expect once it starts? Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. The James Webb Space Telescope has made it to its final destination and successfully unfolded and deployed all of its parts. But the scientists who will use the telescope for the first time still have nearly five months to wait before the observatory begins collecting data. One of those scientists awaiting data from JWST is Dr. Noemi Pinilla Alonzo, a planetary scientist at the Florida Space Institute. She joins us now to explain the wait and her plan to observe Kuiper Belt objects, or as she calls them, KBOs, just beyond the orbit of Pluto. Dr. Pinilla Alonzo, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. 
so a very exciting time in astronomy with the James Webb Space Telescope making it to its final orbit. Um, and you have some time on that telescope. Uh, tell me a bit about what you're going to be utilizing this massive observatory to look at. Uh, yeah, I have a, a good uh, piece of the cake of the time awarded by the James Webb Space Telescope. And I'm going to use it to study the, the big reservoir of ISIS in the solar system. That is the Transneptunian belt or Kuiper belt also known. It's the, the same, two different names for the same thing. And uh, it's one of the largest structures in the solar system, but also one of the most unknown. So these observations are really going to reveal what the objects in that reservoir are made of. And uh, this is the, the big reservoir of Isis and also the origin of the short period comets. So a lot of uh, things to dig up uh, there. And and our listeners will know the Kuiper Belt because that's the place where New Horizons is exploring right now. That was the um, the the space probe that flew by Pluto and is now exploring the Kuiper Belt, right? So, yeah, yeah, exactly. So so tell me a bit about you've got almost a hundred hours on this observatory, uh, which seems like quite a bit of time. Tell me a bit about the process that went into applying and, and receiving you know this this precious time on this telescope because i'm sure a lot of scientists like yourself wanted a wanted a piece of this thing there was a lot of competition in the process of uh, selection uh, it works very similar to other ground based telescopes and also space telescopes like spitzer or like hubble the, these telescopes open maybe twice a year or once a year, depending on them. A process where all the scientists have like a, one month to prepare their proposals and they submit them. So they go through a process of review by experts in the field, colleagues, this is anonymous, and they evaluate the proposals and they pick the, the most interesting for the telescope, the most valuable and the ones that adapt, that really need that telescope to do the science that they want to do. So this process worked with uh, JWST also. They opened the call, I think it was like, it was some, sometime in the autumn last year, in the fall, and the deadline was uh, mid-November. So we had been for years, because we knew that JWST was coming and we were ready for that, we had been studying the different instruments. You have to to pick the best instrument to do the science that you want to do, and you have to evaluate how many objects you need to observe to answer your questions and uh, how much time of the telescope this is going to require. So how much time you stay looking at every single object, for example. And all of that, we had been training with some tools that the JWST had online and they were giving workshops and conferences. And so we had been putting attention on, the, on that to be ready. And in that month, we prepared... The proposal, we found really what we thought were really interesting science questions. And uh, the ones that we thought could not be answered before, but could be answered now just thanks to JWST. It's now the only instrument that can do this science. And we submitted the proposal. It was evaluated and the committee thought the same because they awarded us the time. So they really found it as an interesting project. So you, you mentioned that, and we'll talk about what, what you're going to look at in, in a moment, but you mentioned that JWST is the only telescope that has these particular capabilities. What makes it so special uh, for the objects that you're looking at and for those scientific questions that, that you have? It's a couple of, of themes together, but the, the most important is that uh, it's a tool that is designed to observe in the infrared. And uh, when we try to observe in the infrared from, from the Earth, from ground-based telescopes, we have the atmosphere 
between the target and the telescope that cuts all the information in the specific color that we need to observe to study the surface composition of TNOs. So if we want to, to do a spectroscopy and to distinguish the different ingredients that we need to make a TNO, we have to go outside the atmosphere. And that is what JWST does. But also, is a large and powerful telescope. So it's able to reach these objects that I want to observe that from the vicinity of the Earth are faint objects. So Spitzer could do the same in photometry, not a spectroscopy that you, you have, the level of detail is way uh, lower, uh, but it was not so powerful at this one. So with JWST, we can observe not one or two TNOs, we can observe a bunch of them with a lot of detail, and that is what we are hoping for. So you're able to examine things in the infrared that's not being filtered by our atmosphere, and then also see things that are farther away. So so two kind of advantages to using the JWST observatory. With those advantages, what are you looking at? <laughs> what are you what are you trying to, to see? So, yeah. I'm, uh, you know, you mentioned before New Horizons, and New Horizons was a very successful spacecraft and mission that obtained a lot of detail on three objects, Pluto, Charon, and Arrok. So those are, we could say, the only three TNOs where we really know what is on the surface, because we studied them with New Horizons. But uh, we know now that there are 3,000 KBOs that we have detected and that there are probably billions of them out there. And for all the others, we only know that they, most of them have some amount of ice on the surface. And we suppose, because of the theoretical models, that there have to be other materials on the surface that probably are very complex organics, as on the surface of Pluto. There are probably some silicates and on the surface of comets. There may be methanol, as in a rocot. There may be volatiles, as nitrogen, CO, CO2, these ices that can sublimate easily and form an atmosphere. But all of this, we know it because we know what is on the other three, but we have not detected this on the surface of the KBOs that we have observed from the Earth. On the contrary, we have some colors of some hundreds of TNOs, for example, and we have geometrical video that tells you how much light this object reflects from the sun and those conditions and the size of this, they tell us that there is a lot of diversity. So probably when we observe other TNOs, they are not going to be like Pluto, neither like Charon or neither like Arrokot. They are going to be different because it's what, what, what we have observed tells us. And that diversity is what I want to explore. It's like if you have a menu of, of popsicles there you see there are different colors, but you don't know which flavor each of them have. I want to go for that flavor. I want to dig in detail and see what is in the soup. Uh, you probably wouldn't want to eat any of these uh, Kuiper Belt object popsicles, though, right? Mm, probably <laughs> not. I will stick with my orange juice and my coffee. <laughs> so, I mean, these KBOs, these Kuiper Belt objects, uh, and we've, we've only kind of explored three of them. You're hoping to explore dozens more. Looking at the diversity of these objects, how is this going to help our understanding of, of, of our solar system by, by understanding the makeup of these? What, what are some big questions you hope to answer? You know, the first one that I want to answer is how was the presolar nebula in the region where these objects formed? We, can, we know the planets, kind of not as much detail, never as we would like, but we know them kind of well. We know the asteroids, but all of these objects form closer to the sun than the TNOs. The TNOs form in a region of the presolar nebula where the, the temperatures were lower, and that's why they have more ice. 
But because we don't know what these objects are made of, we don't know what was in that nebula when, when the solar system were, was forming. So we, one of the questions that we want to answer is our origin, the origin of the solar system. What was the distribution of materials, temperatures, densities, a lot of details that when, when you put all of these pieces of the puzzle, how was in the vicinity of Mercury, in the vicinity of the Earth, Jupiter, and Transneptunian belt, you can understand better how our solar system formed and also how it evolved to how it is now, the picture that we see, that we know. Um, one interesting thing I found about this is that you've got some time on, on you know, the first cycle of observations on this observatory, but that's not going to happen for another, what, six months? I mean, what, what, what's the holdup? Why, why aren't you getting your hands on this data anytime sooner? It's there, right? Well, one month has already gone, so I think it's going to be five months from now. <laughs> and now there are five months when the operations group and all the groups that manage each of the instruments, they are going to be checking that the quality... Well, first they have to wake up all the systems. And they have to test every single mechanism that to see that everything works well. Because every time that you point to a different object and just from the moment you decide I'm going to do this object from this program and I'm going to do it with this instrument and this specific filter. So there are a lot of different stages where you have to point there, you have to find the object, you have to put the correct instrument with the correct filter and you have to adjust, focus, and track the object if it's in the solar system before you really can do and hit the go key to start taking the images. So all of that is like a dance of a very complicated ballet, you know, very complicated choreography. And these uh, five months is when the different teams are going to be sure that everything is working well, so that this works smoothly, when we start doing the science. And you can go from one object to the other and do all the science and have all the quality and take the, make the best with JWST. And what is it like for you as, as a researcher getting access to this observatory in its primary science campaign, waiting five months? Have you imagined that moment when you get the notification that your data is ready? What What is that moment going to be like for you? Oh, it's going to be... It's going to be awesome. It's, 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 I've, I mean, years ago, I, I have been already pitching in this moment. You know, it's like for me, I could imagine it like my, my Christmas present. And it couldn't be better that the launch happened on the 25th, you know, so on Christmas Day. But yeah, it's going to be like opening your most desired present that you have ever thought. Well, I, I hope you'll come back to the show and share your Christmas present with the rest of us and, and show us what you learn about these popsicles. Thank, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Brendan, for giving me an opportunity to speak a little bit of what I'm doing. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. You can do it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. 
Production assistance this week from our intern, Beatrice Oliveira. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>